Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're going to Exodus chapter 6, and we're going to see a remarkable passage today in which God tells Moses, I revealed myself at one level to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew me at one level, but I'm going to show you much more about me. I'm going to draw you closer. You are going to walk with me at a level your forefathers never knew. You see, there are levels that we can walk with God on. Everybody's walk with the Lord is not the same. But God's heart, His loving heart, is always to draw us closer to Himself. This is not simply about you getting saved. This is about you being joined to the one who loves you. Our salvation is in order that that we might have that love affair with the living God. It's about two persons, you and your Lord, falling in love with each other and knowing each other. That's the only reason we exist. He had no need for us. He didn't need people, uh, little little helpers on the planet or something, to uh, clean up the place. He didn't make us for those reasons. He made us for relationship. He created you to know you. He saved you. He came after you and rescued you from the claws of the devil that he might know you forever and love you. This is the remarkable thing about our God, and it's very hard to understand. Our human minds, at least mine, has a difficult time comprehending that kind of love. Why would he love me like that? I know me, and I don't. Don't you know you? Don't you know the kind of silly thoughts that go through your head and the angry words that are said in private and the way you feel about people in in all honesty and all kinds of stuff? And you know you. And you think, why would he want me? I don't. And there's the mystery of it all. He does. And of course, he realizes that he's able to free us from this terrible flesh and to allow us to be what he's intended And someday we will be like Christ. Isn't that going to be remarkable? With a resurrected body, with a whole new, whole new being. But he loves us deeply. So he draws us closer. And we're going to see this in Exodus. I'm going to explain to you the revelation of the name of Yahweh. And then we're going to go to the New Testament and see if that same revelation is there. Because if his name is eternal then who he shows himself to be to Moses will be the same person we discover in the New Testament. Nothing should change. Holy Spirit, come now, this Christmas season. Open our eyes to the love of God. Draw us closer, everyone. Reach out to us, Lord, and pull our hearts. We can't see these things except you reveal them. We're asking for a miracle to the heart. And I ask for a miracle and grace upon me, in my heart as well as my body right now, that I might speak your word, that we could hear it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. I'll tell you where we're picking up, but we're back to the situation right now following Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh for the first time. He's gone into Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response was, I don't even know your God. Who do you think you are? And then what he did was add uh, to the burden on the people rather than release them. Remember that? And we talked about standing firm. We said that you can anticipate when you move forward in God a demonic backlash. If you don't know that's there, you'll be confused. You'll often think, what's going on here? We're praying for this person. We're moving forward. And yet things seem to be getting worse. There's a demonic backlash you can anticipate. And so the people got angry at Moses, and Moses got angry at God. And he told the Lord that he felt the Lord had failed, that things had only gotten worse, the Lord hadn't made it better. And uh, that was pretty flattering. And rather than strike him dead, this is what God said, chapter 6, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he shall let them go, and under compulsion he shall drive them out of the land. In other words, I told you it was going to take a process. You're in the first inning of a ten-inning game. Remember how many plagues there were? There were ten. So you're in the first inning of a ten-inning game. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am now, yours will say the Lord, but the Hebrew actually says Yahweh. Is four consonants, Y-H-W-H. Uh, the ancient Hebrew didn't even write vowels. There were none that they put in. I mean, they knew them by heart. And all they wrote were the consonants. So nobody really knows how you pronounce that. The Germans pronounce it Jehovah. That's how you get that. But it's Y-H-W-H, and that's... Out of a piety, the desire to thinking that God's name shouldn't even be spoken, it's so holy, people write in the Lord instead of Yahweh. But he says, I am Yahweh. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai. Mine translates it, God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, they knew the name. In fact, they knew it back in Genesis chapter 4. But God's saying they didn't know what it meant. Their relationship to me, the level at which your forefathers walked with me, was as El Shaddai. I'll explain that in a minute. You're going deeper now. I'm drawing you closer. I'm revealing myself more deeply than I've ever done before. I'm going to show you the meaning of my name, Yahweh. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, <clears throat> the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will also, what's yours say there? Redeem. Say it loud. Very precious word. I'll explain it in a minute. That's not an everyday word. It's a word with a load of meaning. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I'm coming in with guns blazing. And then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, 
who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I will give it to you. And that word, mine says possession. It, the word means inheritance. I will give you an inheritance. For I am, what? I'm Yahweh. But the, so the Lord spoke, pardon me, Moses spoke these words to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen on account of their shortness of breath, it says in the Hebrew. They were worked to exhaustion. They were literally lying there panting with no energy left. The oppression of the Egyptians was taking its toll. They were a broken people. On account of their despondency, their shortness of breath, and harsh bondage. There are different levels at which people relate to God. There is one level in which people, there are those who call on God only when they need help. You know people like that. They don't go to church, they don't worship, they don't read the Bible. They're really not even sure they believe in God, but of course when there's a problem, they do. If the doctor says it's malignant, if there's a car accident, if we get a pink slip and we're out of work, if we get a divorce notice, then all of a sudden, some people get religious. And they turn to God for help. In their thinking, they're giving him an opportunity. This is your big, big break, buds, bud. You know, you, uh, you say you're up there, you say you're powerful. Okay, I'm going to give you a chance. I got a problem here, and you're going to get an opportunity to help me. Such a deal. People give God a big break. It's his opportunity to show himself. Very often, God will. Out of his mercy. He, the fact is, he doesn't owe you a plugged nickel. But he does it out of sheer love and out of mercy very often. But if he does not do it, if he doesn't answer those prayers, if the person dies or the divorce goes through or the whatever, people get angry at him often and they punish him. I know people that have gone through virtually a whole lifetime bitter, deeply bitter at God because they feel he failed them when he had his chance. You had your chance and you blew it. So I will resent you the rest of my life. What a terrible scenario. It's, it's a very ignorant understanding of God and his relationship to us, of, our, of who we are, of who he is. It's just really ignorant. But it's the way a lot of people work. Most of humanity, it seems, turn to God in a moment of crisis. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. We all should turn to God in every crisis. In fact, the Bible says, turn to him in all your ways. The problem is the word only. Only turning to him when you're in trouble. Some people's prayer life only happens when they have a need. Secondly, there are those who, if this is a deeper level, they've moved beyond that and they recognize their sinfulness. In other words, there's a spiritual element to their concern. It's not simply about healing or provision or protection or whatever, but they realize, I have a spiritual lack. I am sinful. Now, that comes from a revelation of the Holy Spirit. Nobody understands their sinfulness except God reveals it to them because by nature, we do what's right in our own eyes. We have an explanation for why we do what we do and feel right about ourselves. But God comes, and when he shows his holiness to us, his purity, his love, his mercy, 
it begins to break down that self-satisfaction. And you compare yourself to him and you say, oh, my goodness, compared to you, I am a wretch. My good works are filthy rags. I need a Savior. Now, that's a wonderful moment. When you really begin to realize your sin and know you're in trouble, what a great moment that is. You've already had a huge amount of ministry from the Holy Spirit to get to that point. And that person then responds to the gospel by confessing and repenting. They trust and submit the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They submit to his lordship and they are born again. But that relationship even there does not, ha- does not necessarily entail a warm intimacy with God. It's I believe the gospel. I believe God's there. I believe he sent his son. I believe these things are true. I trust him for my salvation. And indeed you have it. It is by faith. Abraham believed God and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So there's a salvation, but it is not necessarily an intimate relationship. Then there's another level. There are those who regularly meet God personally through worship and prayer. They have fallen in love with God. They have met him. You see, there is a God. This isn't just a theology. It's not a philosophy. There is a person. He's spirit, so you don't see him, but he's very real. A spirit is a personality. It's a mind. It's, you're a person because God made you one. So who comes to you is a person. He has a sense of humor. Sometimes I question it. He has, he has things that grieve him. He has love to give. He has conviction he brings. He speaks things to you. You've met, you come to a living God. And the more you know him, the more you will love him, unless, of course, you're fundamentally a rebel. But if you're a born-again man or woman, you fall in love with this God, and he draws you closer and closer to himself. See, he doesn't want to leave us simply at a state of, of faith. He wants us drawn closer into a relationship with him personally. And then there are those who let God's presence through as they worship and pray and, and, and commune with him, they are transformed by his presence until they are filled with his love for others. All of a sudden it moves beyond just even me and God. And this love of God causes me to long to bring others to him. And that I would call true discipleship. When that otherliness has hit the heart, when the passion is to bring others to know this Jesus Christ that I love so much. That is truly a disciple. God is always drawing us closer, changing our understanding of who he is and how he feels about us. We learn more and more about how he feels about us. In this passage of Exodus, let's review it again. Let me just put in my, my own words what you just saw in those verses. Verse number one. God says, remember, Moses, I told you that the deliverance of Israel would be a process. You didn't listen to me. And just because you got the first demonic bump back, you think I've failed. You're only in the first inning of the game, and you ain't seen me when I go up to bat yet. I'm going to do some things that will just stagger the world. They'll remember this 3,000 years from now. 
Hold on to your hats. You're going for a ride. Verse 2 and 3. The Lord says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob related to me as El Shaddai. But they did not know me at the level I'm going to reveal to you. You're going to discover why I'm called Yahweh. Verse 4. I promised your forefathers I would give their descendants the land of Canaan. Verse 5. Now it's time to act on that promise. Verse 6. Tell Israel I want to draw them closer by showing them what my name means. And here we go. It means, number one, I am your Redeemer. Remember in chapter 3 when Moses was on Mount Sinai and the Lord appeared at the burning bush and he said, what is your name? I don't even know it. And, and the Lord said to him, what? I am that I am. Tell the people that I am has sent me. I am, and, and certainly that implies he is ever-present. He is always the I am. He's not the I was. He's the I am in every moment of time. He literally is somehow outside of time, watching all things, the unmovable, unchanged I am. But if we begin now, he says, I'm going to define for you what I am. And first thing he says is, I am your kinsman redeemer. You know, you say, where did you get that? Well, the word redeem, remember I said it's an important word. It's a special word. It's not just an everyday word. The word is goel. He says to them, I will goel you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. A kin I, am a, I am your kinsman redeemer. There was, they knew what that meant. That was a very special word. It, a, a goel is a member of a family who buys back or ransoms another member of the family, especially when the person was in slavery for debt or is about to fall into that condition. You have a family member who has going bankrupt, having to sell themselves into indentured servitude, lose all of the family holdings. In that culture, as their closest relative, whoever is their closest relative with a means to help, you are obligated. It's not simply, do I want to or do I like my cousin? You are obligated. There's a family obligation to go and rescue your family member. Leviticus 25, 25 says, If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman, his goel, that's, the, that's what it's translating with that phrase. His goel is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. The classic illustration of it, or one of them, is Ruth. Remember the story of Ruth? You've got Naomi, this, this gal and her husband, Elimelech. And they, there's, a, there's a famine in Israel, and so they take their whole family to Moab to survive. And in Moab... Elimelech dies, and so do their two sons who married and have wives. So now you've got just this one older woman, Naomi, and her two daughter-in-laws. One, one of them says, she says, I'm going back to Israel, and one of them says, so am I. Where you dwell, I'll dwell, and your God will be my God. Who is that? It's Ruth. And so Ruth went back with her mother-in-law, and they had one piece of land there 
and they were going to have to sell it and forfeit it because they were in debt. And Ruth is out gleaning in the fields, going after the harvesters, picking up whatever grain is forgotten. In fact, Israel was instructed to leave the corners of the field for the hungry and poor. There was always a care for the poor in God's, God's law. And so they, they're, they're, they're gleaning at the fields, and she ends up, by the Lord's guidance, she ends up in a portion of a field belonging to a man by the name of, who happened to be a very close relative. And in the process of all of this, I, I, he falls in love with her. I think he's got an eye for her early on, in my opinion. But she's an upright and a godly woman, Ruth. And Naomi says, where were you gleaning? And she says, well, I was gleaning in the field of Boaz. And Naomi, Naomi says, why, that's our Goel. Our Goel, our, our kinsman redeemer. So she says, now you stay in that field. In fact, when he go tonight... When he goes to sleep at the foot of the, all of that grain guarding it, I want you to lie at his feet and just put his blanket over you, which was a symbol, you are my goel, you cover me. So in the middle of the night, here's Boaz, sound asleep, feels this lump at his feet, sits up, you can imagine, <laughs> and there's this bump at his feet, and he says, who's there? And Naomi said, I mean, uh, Ruth says, it's, it's me. Cover me. Calls on him as the family Goel to rescue them. And, and he does. In fact, he's delighted. But he's got a problem. There's a closer Goel than him. So he has to go and do this formal thing in the, in the, in the, in the town in front of all the elders. It's a, it's a business transaction. And the two men sit there and they dialogue with the elders watching. And he says, our brother Elimelech has died. And they're going to forfeit the property. As a goel, we must, you have the first right of redemption of this property. Would you like it? And the other guy says, you bet I would. Good piece of land. And then Boaz plays his card and he says, however, if you do take the property, you must also take Ruth, the Moabitess, and marry her and give children to her for our brother. And so the other guy's thinking, my kids will never go for this, dividing the piece of property another time. And so he says, in that case, I forfeit. And then they hand the sandal, you know, the whole thing. Boaz is delighted. He gets the property and a pretty good-looking chick. <laughs> He's an old guy, so this is a miracle, and she loves him. He is their goel. Now think of that because that's what this means. So when the Lord says, I am Yahweh and I will goel you, he's saying, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they knew me as a promise keeper, a powerful God with a character who would keep his promises to a thousand generations. And I am that. But I'm taking you deeper. I'm coming after you not because I have to keep a promise. Not out of some principle. I'm coming after you because I love you and I see you as my family. I'm committed to you. I am your kinsman redeemer. Not simply a God who will come and rescue you. I am your Goel who will come for you and rescue you.
Number two, verse seven. He says here, then I will take you for my people. Look at that wording. I will take you for my people. It is a very specific choice of words. When you have a wedding, you'll hear people say, do you take this woman to be your wife? If so, say I do. Will you take this man to be your husband? We, we have the same language today. And it's meant that then. I could take you to places where it says, and he took her for a wife. It means he either married her, he's marrying someone, or he's adopting. I suggest it means both. He says here, I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. Here, just like a marriage, isn't it? And you shall know that I am Yahweh. He says, I am your heavenly father, or I am your bridegroom. Look back at chapter 4, verse 22 a moment. He's already started this theme. Moses is instructed here, he says, You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my what? My son, my firstborn. I'm not doing this to just sort of take care of a people. This isn't some sort of logistical thing. This is my firstborn son. Do you hear the intimacy? Do you hear the relationship? Do you hear the commitment? Do you hear the heart of God? It's awkward, isn't it? What do you mean? Why do you feel that way about them? Don't you suppose Israel's a a pretty sinful lot? Don't you suppose they're worshiping other gods? Don't you suppose they're immoral? What's he thinking? Well, what condition were you in when he got you? Why does God love sinful people? Why does he have this passion? Because that's what's being expressed. Passion. I love you. Not simply, I love you. It's, you're my people. You're my family. You're my bride. You're my firstborn. If it's marriage that he's talking about, it all fits because he's, as you go on through the Old Testament, whenever Israel was worshiping other gods, the Lord referred to it as what? Adultery. You have betrayed me. I give you a passage you can look up later there in Ezekiel that's just a classic. It talks about how I found you in the roadside. You grew up and I married you. And you betrayed me. You're an adulteress. It's the, you, you hear in it this broken heart of a husband who's been abandoned by a wife. You know, you watch that, the prophet Hosea, if you haven't read that lately, Hosea is just an incredible expression of this kind of thing, this, this goel, where Hosea has to go and buy his wife back in the slave market after she's prostituted herself. And the Lord had him marry a prostitute. Because the Lord says, I want you to see what it's like loving you. I want you to know what it feels like. I want you to model for Israel what I go through being your God. You are an adulterous people. I'm trying to marry you. I'm trying to love you. I'm trying to have fellowship with you. And you betray me over and over again. He says, I want you to model for them what it's like being their God. He was not just the I am present throughout the universe. 
He was there, I am, who would personally go with them through everything that lay ahead, like a husband or a father. He would cherish them as a father cherishes his children or a husband cherishes his bride. He was, when he was finished delivering them from Egypt, there would be no doubt how much he loved them. They would see, I'm going to deliver you not simply because I promised your forefathers I would, but because I love you passionately. His passionate love is embarrassing and confusing, at least to me it is. Why would he feel this way? You know, you think of God as being majestic and powerful, and yet he's wearing his heart on his sleeve. He's showing his injured heart. He's, he's grieving over their betrayal. What a strange thing. God, you shouldn't behave like that. You should sit up there and, you know, like, all right, fricassee them all. Isn't that what you think God should do? Instead, here he is coming after them, wooing them, yearning over them, telling them how much they've hurt him. <laughs> you see, he's holy. And you and I cannot comprehend holiness. There's nothing in our experience to compare it to. We only can learn about it by experiencing God by sensing his holiness. Here's what I think's happened. I believe in the heart of God. There, our God, we believe in the, in the Trinity. We believe there's a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit. And that in God's heart, there is, there's always been this love, love for the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. But love, you think of something like love wearing out. If I love somebody, then I don't need anybody else. But love is is something that the more you use it, it expands, doesn't it? I mean, how many people would say, well, I had one child, and, but I didn't have any love left over for the second one? It doesn't work like that. You, you just love this one child, and you think this one child is absolutely wonderful, and then you get another one, and you love, feel the same way about the one, and it doesn't diminish your love for the first one. And some, of, some people have 12. And you love every one of them because every one of them is unique. Everyone has a personality. Everyone is special. You can't imagine your life without that one. Right? That's how God feels about you. You're not number 9,563,782. You're you. And he longs to be with you forever. That's why he's waiting in the return of Jesus Christ. That's why the skies aren't splitting open. So many people are still being saved. The Lord's thrilled. All these beloved will be with me forever. Now, I can barely understand that. I'm trying to describe something. I can hardly understand that heart. But that is the heart of our God. Because he loved us, he sent his son to save us. That we might be with him forever. He says, I will be to you a husband. I will be your heavenly father. And then thirdly, verse 3, I mean, pardon me, verse 8 of chapter 6. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you. And there again is a special word, up for a possession, but it's really for an inheritance. I am Yahweh. The Lord says, I am your Kinsman, redeemer, I am your father, your heavenly father or your bridegroom. I am your 
your father, as it were, who's giving you an inheritance. Inheritances are given because you're part of a family, right? I mean, you can sell somebody property, you can gift somebody property, but inheritance, is there's a right to it. There's a relationship in it. It's a relational word. You get it because you're mine. You're my flesh. That's how come you get it. You belong to me. Not because of what you did or, or you didn't earn it or pay me for it. It's you're mine. You're... And that's the word he uses. I'm giving you this not simply because I, to keep a promise to your forefathers. I'm giving it to you because I love you. And I think of you as my family. Let's review what we've seen. God says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew me as El Shaddai. The word Shaddai means something to do with the mountains. Why would it be the God of the mountains? Well, what it is is, you know, people come and go. Generations come and go. But the mountains stand there in our minds forever. And he says, I'm like the mountains. You generations go past, but I never change. He's the God who doesn't forget. He's the promise keeper who keeps his promises for a thousand generations while all these human generations are passing by. El Shaddai doesn't change. How many of you have probably Christian ancestry? I mean, maybe it's been generations, but you had family somewhere who were, who were Christians. How many of you have figured those people prayed and knew the Lord and trusted that God would bless their children and their offspring? How, have you ever thought of this? That there are things that have happened in your life. There have been blessings and protection. There have been care given you. Because God hasn't forgotten a promise he made 100, 400 years ago. To your great, great, great grandmother. That's El Shaddai. He never forgets. There's not a shelf life to his promises. They don't wear out. What he promised somebody in, in the year 1512 that he would do for their children. He's still doing it. How many people are today, you know, you can running around in unbelief or defying God, and yet they're still cared for, and they don't even know why. But El Shaddai is keeping his promises. He says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew me as El Shaddai, and I am. But he said, I'm going to take you deeper. You'll now know why I'm called Yahweh, the ever-present one. I'm going to join myself to you as your heavenly father, as your bridegroom. I've got an inheritance for you. I love you. You're going to relate to me at a deeper level, a closer level than your forefathers ever knew. Let me show you this happens in Moses' experience and in the people. Chapter 33 of Exodus. This is before the tabernacle was built. But listen to this. Chapter 33, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. So he had some tent. It was reasonably small, I gather. And he called the tent, it the tent of meeting. And it came about that everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now notice the difference. Jacob wrestled with God, almost won. What a dummy. Abraham served him dinner. We even know what was on the menu. 
begged for Sodom and Gomorrah to be spared so that Lot would be protected. They talked with God. They wrestled with God. They ate with him. But they didn't do this. They didn't go out and talk with him. He didn't dwell among them like that. He would show up, and he would watch over them from a distance. But the relationship was not what this is. It goes on. Listen to this. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and wait to see the show. At the entrance of the, when he, each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And boy, when Moses went out there, the pillar of cloud would descend and to stand at the entrance of the tent. And Moses would, and the Lord would speak with Moses. He would be Yahweh to him. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. And thus the Lord used to speak to Moses, what? Face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend, I will be Yahweh to you. I will be a heavenly father. I will be your bridegroom. You'll know me as more than El Shaddai. Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Look, look, look down to verse 14. and uh, Moses is saying to him, if you don't go with us, if your presence doesn't go with us, see, I now expect your presence. And God said, my presence shall go with you. I will give you rest. And then Moses says, if, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how can, then can it be known if I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? What marks the people of God now? That the presence of God goes with us. What it, and he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Say Emmanuel means what? That marks the new level. Three things they discovered about Yahweh. He was a redeemer. He would redeem them. He is their heavenly father. He would adopt them or marry them. I argue both. I'll show you in a minute maybe. And thirdly, he would give them an inheritance. If those are the meanings of the name of Yahweh, at least some of them, then we're going to find that same thing in the New Testament. Let's see if we do. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Verse 23. Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the what? Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. God has sent his son. He's come after us like Abraham went after Lot when he was captured by the kings from the east. He took 300 men and he went for it. And the Lord says, I'm coming after you with an outstretched arm and many miracles. I got guns blazing. I'm coming after my sweetheart. They're not taking my firstborn. 
I'll come after you. I'm your Goel. I will redeem you. Look with me uh, at Galatians chapter 4. I'm not going to read all of the verses I have. I just don't want to use the time. Galatians 4. Verse 4. Paul again. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, Merry Christmas, born under the law, so that he might do what? Redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. That's men and women, by the way. It's a position, not a, not a sex. Might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth his, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then what? An heir, an inheritor. You see it? Redemption, adoption, and inheritance. Say those three words with me. Redemption, adoption, and inheritance. Nothing's changed. Yahweh is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing has changed. He redeems us. He adopts us. And he gives us an inheritance. What is that inheritance? I'll show you at Romans chapter 8. These themes are all through the New Testament. I'm just picking some in the interest of time. Romans chapter 8, starting there at verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, notice this, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of what? Adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then what? Heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That is huge. Fellow heirs with Christ. In the old covenant, if you walked with God, you received the blessings of who? Abraham. Remember that? The blessings of Abraham. You would be prospered. You would be protected. You, there was a land. There was, there was a, a promise that you had a, of spiritual influence on the world. You got the blessings of Abraham. But now, we who are Christians, we who are joined to Christ, not only get the blessings of Abraham, but we get something far better. Far better. We get the blessings of who? Christ. All that Jesus Christ has won is your inheritance. He has died and risen again. Death has lost its hold over Jesus Christ. That's why you've inherited eternal life. He has been resurrected in a powerful new spiritual body. That's why you will be resurrected. He is now in the very presence of the Lord, immersed in the glory of God. That's why you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, given all authority and power. That's why you will rule and reign with Christ forever. You are now, the Bible says, seated with him in heavenly places. That's your inheritance. Your precious heavenly Father, your Goel, saw you trapped by the devil, 
by death, by sin, by addictions, by disease. He saw you. He came after you with an outstretched arm and rescued you by a great judgment, sending his son. And then he adopts you, marries you. I didn't take you there, but I could show you both. Jesus Christ relates to the church as his bride. And yet he teaches us to pray our heavenly father. Both are true. He adopts you. He marries you. And then he gives you an inheritance that's unbelievable. An eternal inheritance that Christ has won for himself by his own righteousness and his glorious triumph and obedience. And it's given to us. Quite the gift, huh? Last text, Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm done. Just want to show you. Watch it again, how powerful this is. I'll just read sample verses because I'm in, in the interest of time. Verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. He's our inheritance. Verse 5, he predestined us to what? Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Verse 7. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. Verse 11. Also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are first to hope in Christ would be the praise of, of his glory. Verse 13, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is a foretaste of what's to come. God says, you're not going to get all your inheritance yet. There's so much waiting for you. But I want you to have some of it now. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. I'm going to baptize you, every part of your being. You're going to, you're going to be immersed in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. little sample of what you're going to get when you get to heaven. Because there, the power of the Holy Spirit so much, it'll kill you right now if you had it. But you're going to live in that presence and power of the glory of God. It'll be so strong, there won't even be a sun to light the earth. You won't need it. The Shekinah glory of God will light it. That's your inheritance. You get a foretaste of it now in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart be enlightened. That you would understand the inheritance that you have in Christ Jesus. I hope you get a picture, he says, of the glory that's been given to you. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to ask two questions. I said that we're all at different levels. Where are you today? Are you someone who's come to God and looked to, for help? That's the right place to go. But maybe today you now know that the most important thing you need is forgiveness for your sins. You know that you're a sinner. 
and that you've never really trusted Jesus as your Savior, or you've never really given your will to him. You know these things, but you've never made the choice. You've never done it personally. I want to invite you right now. Are you ready to choose? Are you ready to move to another level, to be drawn closer to the Lord in salvation? Anyone right now want to raise your hand and say, Pastor, that's me. I'm taking that step today. I'm choosing to move from simply coming to God when I need help, but I'm choosing to say I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I come to Him and embrace my Savior. Praise the Lord. And who else would, yes, God bless you. Yes, God bless you. Praise the Lord. This is the right time to do this. To come closer to the Lord. Do you know you're a sinner? Then you must choose your Savior. You must embrace Him with everything in you. And He will save you indeed. Adopt you as His child. And give you a precious inheritance. Anyone else need to raise their hand right now and say, Pastor, I'm taking that step. I'm choosing Christ today. All right, church, let's pray together. There's several who've raised their hands. And those who've raised your hands, now you pray this. I'm going to lead you in that basic prayer to receive him now. You mean it from your heart, and the Lord will see you and, and, and save you. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son. You loved me so much. While I've been a sinner, I don't understand it. But today, I believe it. You do love me. You want me with you forever. I receive you. I receive the gift of your precious son, Jesus. I confess today that Jesus Christ is the son of God. That he died in my place on the cross. He died the death I should have died. I deserve to die for my sins. But Jesus Christ took my place. Such mercy. I receive that mercy. I receive the forgiveness. My sins are cleansed. Everything of the past, as I walk in Christ, everything in the future, Jesus Christ, I bow my knee to you for such love, for such a gift. I can only give my life back to you. From this day forward, I put my hand in yours. I will follow you, obey you, trust you the rest of my life. You are my Lord. And now I'd like to have one of the precious gift now, your inheritance, is this Holy Spirit. And so if you're praying this particularly for the first time, anyone's welcome to do it. But put your hand on your heart, and I'm going to pray freely. But we're just acknowledging right now and receiving the impartation of the Holy Spirit. He comes and he lives inside you, literally in your body. He joins himself to your spirit forever. This is very wonderful. Holy Spirit, we receive you. You are our inheritance. I thank you, Lord, for each one right now receiving Christ. For those of us who are doing the, praying this for the hundredth time, we receive you afresh. Come, O oh Lord, 
Come and dwell in power. Move in our hearts. Transform us and change us. Be our strength and our guidance and our comfort. Live with us forever. By your power, we will endure. By your power, we'll be victorious. And Lord, we will be raised into eternal life because of your mighty arms around us and your presence within us. We confess it now. Baptize us, dear Holy Spirit, in your mighty name. Amen. Now, I have one more question. Would you bow your heads once more? Somebody here may say, I have walked with the Lord a long time. I've trusted him as my Savior, but I've not had the kind of intimacy, the love, the warmth, the closeness with him in my prayer life, in my worship life. In fact, it's almost non-existent, Pastor. I believe these things. I know I'm saved. But I don't have that kind of relationship. But I want it. I'm saying to him today, I want to know you as Yahweh. I want to know you as my precious Heavenly Father. I want to know you as my bridegroom. I want to know that love. I want to walk closely with you and have a soft heart. Remove the calluses. Draw me closer, Lord. Who needs to say that today? Lift your hand before the Lord and just keep it up for a minute. I'm going to just pray for you. Oh, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for each hand raised right now. I pray for your sweetness to come with real power. Lord, there may be bitterness in the heart. I ask you to just pull that root out and free us from the injury and from the anger and the hurt and melt our heart again with your love. Lord, if there's, if there's been disappointment or confusion, we pray that that be ministered to and released. Whatever it is that separates us, if it's pride and the fear of breaking down or of looking foolish or a loss of control, we just die to that stuff. And we, you've come after us with a passion and a love, longing to hold us, embrace us, to be with us, to meet with us in the tent until our faces shine. Oh, Holy Spirit, we no longer hold back. We no longer resist, but we wish to press in and to love you and to know you and to know the, the presence of the Holy Spirit being shed abroad in our hearts. Great love, great peace, the sweetness, Lord, until tears run down our faces. Come and melt these hearts. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.